Welcome to our podcast series, Identity Dialoguing with the Other Myself. I'd like to welcome Dr. Shukti Choudhury Brill, a linguistic anthropologist who's done extensive research with the Roma and immigrant communities in Europe. She's here to speak to us about the role of anthropology and understanding identity. Welcome, Shukti. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So I wanted to start with um, generally understanding a definition of anthropology and what anthropology is uh, for our listeners to get a basic uh, framework from which to understand this topic. Okay, well, I'll do my best. It's a big question. Um, as short so and as, as precise as you can. <laughs> okay, well, um, so the the major question um, that anthropology is engaged with um, is really the question of what what does it mean to be human so in that sense it shares quite a lot with perhaps philosophy more than many of the other disciplines even though it's a social science um, as uh, and has some similarities of course with other social sciences that are also looking at this question um, but often from from different perspectives so anthropology takes a very broad and very deep um, perspective to this question. So we look at the question of, of being human or our human identity from the perspective of the biological, the um, the social and cultural, the, the linguistic, um, which uh, is something we focus on specifically because since language is something that is so central to our human identity um, and also sets us apart in some ways, from other species. Um, and then finally, um, at least in the American tradition, we also look very much at material culture. So archeology span is a part of, of the anthropological sciences as well. Um, it differs a bit in Europe where archeology span is seen as, as more separate, but, um, but the concern with looking at how our material culture um, is part of our way of, of you know, creating identity. Um, and the... Um, so the the breadth of anthropology means that we take um, both a diachronic and a synchronic perspective. We look at how um, ideas um, change over time, as well as looking at what's happening in the present time. Um, we look at um, you know questions from all of these different domains, as I just mentioned, um, and also we look um, at um, we study our subject, not just from the macro level, but, but really the focus is more at, at the micro level. So looking at the level of individual subjects, um, individual you know, groups, communities, um, and also, and then seeing how that intersects with these larger micro, uh, macro level um, structures. Um, so it's really sort of taking a, a, a top down and bottom up approach. Um, and that really, distinguishes us from some of the other disciplines such as sociology, which tends to look more at just the macro level uh, or psychology even, which really is looking very much at just the individual level. Um, so I hope that gives yeah, that, that some was perspective. Excellent. It gives a real perspective and it, it segues really into the next question about how does anthropology conceptualize or frame identity? Um, and you know, and how do you go about studying this and the different tools and methods you use to understand it? So maybe the first question. Uh, remind me again. Yes, <laughs> how does anthropology conceptualize or frame identity? Um, 
Okay. So, so one thing that I didn't mention when I was talking about, um, you know, the definition of anthropology is, is one other really important aspect is that it's, it's a comparative endeavor. So we're looking at these, um, questions about being human and, and what it means to be human, um, but not looking at just one society or one subsection of society, but really looking very, very broadly across the globe at human societies everywhere. Um, so that kind of comparison gives us um, um, insight, I think, at a different level than some of the other disciplines do. Um, but it also allows us to make some generalizations, although it's always difficult and we should be careful about making too many generalizations across across cultures. But we do see that certain uh, certain um, concepts um, uh, emerge out of out of this comparative data. So anthropologists think of identity um, as uh, as something, well, we use certain terms to, to talk about it. So we have terms such as um, status and role, where um, which reflect the, the idea that um, any individual is born um, into an, a pre-existing group and, and that, that individual then becomes born into um, you know, a family and, and within that family will have a particular status or a particular role that they are imagined to fulfill. And of course, whether this actually um, happens in reality or not is 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 something else. Um, but there are always certain expectations um, that are immediately placed on that individual that maybe by virtue of um, their birth order, their gender, um, uh, perhaps the family's position in the society, um, uh, etc. And so those kinds of um, identities that almost in a sense pre-exist the individual are become uh become salient then in the in the individual's life um and we have this notion that um you know we have certain roles that we play um within the group uh in which we are existing you know initially it's usually the family group because that's the thing that's the most important um but then you have a position within that group of being the child of being a brother or a sister or an older brother or an older sister or a middle child uh etc and um and so those are um elements that that very much go into um uh affecting our, our sense of self uh, right from the beginning. Um, and the the other um, side to that is the, the, the concept of um, ascribed versus achieved identity, that certain identities are, are already there that sort of pre-exist us before we we're even born. And then we're sort of born into those identities as I was just describing. And those would be what we call ascribed identities. Um, something that um, is is out there that has been defined or sort of set um, by some outside power. Um, and then, of course, there's also the concept of achieved identity, that any individual will be uh, doing things um, to either fulfill their role or to um, to merit whatever status they've been given, or perhaps to challenge it or to want to change it. Um, and so those are ways in which then the individual has more um, of an active role in um, in acquiring that identity, either in the sense in which it's been ascribed or perhaps even by changing it in some way.
Ah, it's extremely interesting. I know that you listened to some of the previous podcasts, and I wondered if you might speak to some of the different roles and statuses that you saw, um, and maybe some of your observations in those podcasts. Um, and, and well, other... Yeah, well, I was really struck that, um, you know, without having you know, an anthropology background, uh, you know, not thinking about it theoretically at all. Um, the the people who, who were interviewed um, were, were really speaking to some of these um, points that I just, you know, was talking about, for example, um, talking about um, the particular role in the in the family and, and that being a really central part of their identity, whether somebody was a sister, whether somebody was a son, um, also gender identity, um, uh, one of your um, speakers um, mentioned how that was a very important part of of his identity um, because he was uh, born into a very strongly heteronormative masculine uh, society, um, but didn't identify uh, with that, and um, and and how he could go about um, challenging some of those norms through certain behaviors, um, such as painting his nails uh, or growing his hair long. Um, so, so I think the, um, the individuals are, are, you know, through telling their stories are really touching on some of these points that we are thinking about as anthropologists about, you know, what does it mean to be part of, uh, of a social group? Um, because we're not just individuals, we're always part of some social group, whether it's the family group, whether it's the LGBTQ plus um, community, um, you know, or, um, uh, and, and it's, and part of finding our identity is finding the groups that we share things in common with and, and, and want to be a part of. So you, um, spoke to me a little bit about the notions of constructed, constructing and performing identity. And I wondered if you might elaborate a little bit about what those concepts mean. Yeah, so um so you know when we think about an ascribed status, for example, there's something that's very static about that notion that there's you know pre-existing ideas of certain social statuses that exist. Um individuals are born and are sort of slotted into those um positions. Um it doesn't leave the human the 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 individual with um with a lot of agency and um, anthropology, again, to, from taking this comparative perspective and looking at what's actually happening on the ground, um, is that we see that even though there are these um, ascribed or prescribed statuses, um, that people actually do quite a lot to um, to go about um, creating a space for themselves within within these um, positions. And um, and they may agree or not agree with them, and they do, and they may do things that that challenge or um, or or they attempt to change aspects of that status. Um, and so that's the uh, that has led anthropologists to take um, a more more interest in what's actually happening, uh, where you know not just assuming that people you know, automatically take on this mantle of, okay, now I'm a daughter in this society and, and this is what that means. And now I'm a female in the society and this is what that means. But that they actually, that they actually have to work to 
um, create that status in a way that um, that they feel comfortable with, um, either because it then con um, serves to affirm their identity in a way that society um, um, finds appropriate, or it serves perhaps to challenge um, things that they ag don't agree with, perhaps, or that they see as, as needing to be modified or changed. And so um, identity is seen as this very active process that we don't just, you know, sort of automatically take on these, uh, take this very passive role on, but that we are constantly acting um, through, um, through our behaviors, through our interactions, through the things that we say, through the things that we do, the way that we dress, um, you know, choosing to paint our nails or not, um, that those are all ways in which we can, you know, be serving to affirm or reaffirm or contradict or challenge uh, in some way these aspects of identity. So that's what we mean by identity as constructed. And, um, and then there's also the notion that we use as a theoretical um, notion in anthropology to look at how we can think of anthropology as also, uh, or sorry, as of identity as performed. So we have this notion of role, for example, where you know somebody has the role of, in society, you may have a professional role. You know, you're a doctor or you're a lawyer. Uh, you may have a particular role in your community. You are a church leader or you are the head of the household. Um, you know, all of these different kinds of roles that that society um, sees as relevant. Um, and um, but there's also coming from the world of the theater the notion of the role as as an as something that we are acting in that we're actually presenting ourselves um, through a performance, um, and so there's we've anthropology has taken that notion of role to think about how we can apply it to perhaps understanding these social roles um, that we play to think about what is it that we do performatively to enact those roles to make ourselves fit society's expectations. Um, or to to create, um, you know, a sense of what that role actually means. Well, that's, uh, it really puts into perspective a lot of what our previous speakers have been speaking about. Um, one of the things you also mentioned was something about community and social networks and what this community means. And you didn't mention it previously, but in what way does community um play a role in understanding anthropology and our identity. Um, and you mentioned something previously about anthropology talks about kinship networks and different aspects of groups. I wondered if you might elaborate a little bit about that. Well, many of these statuses and roles that we're talking about are, um, are tied to, to larger um larger groupings um, that are relevant in society. So for example, the family um, is, you know, one of the most essential um, uh, units uh, in society. And of course, that's the first um, social group that the individual is, comes into contact with once, once they are born. Um, but of course, different societies um, have different ways of constructing family relationships. In some places, you know, it's the nuclear family that is really the most salient. Um, in other societies, you know, the concept of an extended kinship network is is really uh, very important. You know, the, 
different generations may be living together, um, who is considered to be part of the close family unit may actually extend quite far relevant to how another society might see, um, you know, what what counts as a close relative versus a more distant relative. So we have those differences. Um, but the but the family unit as a as a social group is 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 very important to the individual and and several of your um, speakers um, in in some of the previous podcasts have spoken to that um, to that aspect of their identity. But I think um, what um, in a larger sense um, the family group of or the kinship network is is of course one of the most important um, and and first kinds of groups that we come into. But as we um, as we get older, as our interests develop, as our identities start to form um, and and coalesce, um, not just about in terms of family role and status, but, you know, uh, we, we become part of the larger community. Um, you know, other kinds of groups take on more salience, you know, your, your friend group, your, um, you know, if you are somebody who has, who's particularly passionate, perhaps it's people who share, uh, sorry, passionate about politics, it's maybe people who share your political identities, or your, your political beliefs, um, religion, you know, religious uh, communities may may come to play uh, a, a, a large part in shaping identity. Um, so we have these, these larger units within society, um, within which we can also seek and find um, ways to to explore our identity well so thank you um i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the tools and methods that are used in anthropology to understand identity and drawing from some of your research with roma and immigrant communities i wonder if you could just elucidate elucidate a little bit about that um yeah, so I mentioned at the beginning how um, anthropology takes this very broad and at the same time very deep perspective, um, and sort of and looks both at the macro and the micro level. So, so how do we go about doing that? Um, so, um, in some ways, we use some of the same tools as some of the other social sciences. For example, sociology, which is which is uh, one of the most closely uh, related um, social science disciplines to to anthropology. So we look at things like, um, you know, survey data, um, you know, censuses, um, larger scale um, information that tells us something about populations, about demographics, about um, about movements or shifts within those um, uh, from that, from those perspectives, um, but at the same time, we're also really interested in what's what's happening at the very personal or or small group level um, uh, on the ground. Um, so typically, anthropologists will use um, uh, perhaps some of those larger scale um, quantitative, um, more quantitative based um, data, but as a way to frame questions that they're exploring at the. Uh, at the smaller scale, so working perhaps just with you know individuals in in communities or in um, uh, you know with just a small group of families, um, sort of following them, really just doing a lot of hanging out and and talking to people um, and seeing how their daily lives unfold and participating as much as we can uh, with them in those um, in those daily lives to see how um, their identity is um, 
is uh, called on and how they go about constructing or challenging or performing, you know, however, however we want to call it, um, what that actually means in, um, in just very quotidian, you know, day-to-day -day kinds of encounters, because that's really where, you know, it's not just about somebody interviewing you and asking you, what do you think? Um, because sometimes what we, you know, say to an interview is not necessarily what's actually playing out in, you know, when you're when you're having a chat with your neighbor over a cup of tea. Yeah. So one of the things um, you talked about is your work with the Roma and how their identity evolved with regards to the macro level changes politically. And I wondered if you might just elucidate a little bit about that work, because it's kind of an illustration of how you studied identity. Um, if you could just speak. How much time do we have here? <laughs> um, yeah, so, well, I'll try to keep it short. So um, the research that I did for my, my PhD dissertation was set in the Czech Republic, and I started doing research, um, field research there, um, oh, as early, back in the early 1990s. So this was um, historically, for the for your speak, uh, your, your listeners, um, this was just a couple of years after um, the fall of communism, after what was what is known as the Velvet Revolution, um, where you know things changed, um, the political regime changed very peacefully um, in the Czech um, and Slovak um, context. I went back um, in the early two thousands to to really do the more serious, focused um, part of my of my field research for my dissertation. So it was within about ten years of of uh, this political change. And I did my field work um, partially in a school um, that had been um, set up with the help of funding from some NGOs, mainly coming from, from the US, um, uh, to offer a high school education for Roma children and only Roma children. So it was Maybe you could tell the, popula uh, the listeners who the Roma are, just briefly. We have about okay. five minutes. Okay. Yeah. So the Roma are um, uh, one of the national minorities in the Czech um, and Eastern European area uh, uh, areas. Um, they are historically um, seen as um, coming from uh, ethnically. They are um, similar to to Indians from northwest the northwest part of India, um, but they've been living in. Um, in Europe, they migrated out of uh, out of the Asian context uh, almost a thousand years ago, and they've been living in in Europe uh, in large numbers in the eastern part of Europe. But they are found in many parts of Europe, including Western and Northern Europe as well. Um, and you know, since there's there's been a, a diaspora, you know, a, across many other countries. Um, but uh, but historically, they were a very marginalized community. They were seen as being very different. They looked physically very different. They spoke a, a language that was of Indian um, origin, so it, it set them apart because it seemed very different from the, the Slavic languages um, that were spoken in the area. Um, so for, for many of these reasons, they were very marginalized, but under the 60 years of communism, the Soviet regime uh, you know, didn't want to allow for things like ethnic difference to play a role. You know, everybody was just a good communist. So things like, you know, speaking a different language, having a different religion or, you know, having a different culture, um, uh, all that was supposed to be 
um, sort of, you know, um, not relevant. Yeah, sort of suppressed. And so, you know, things happened um, to actually en enable that suppression, such as children were taken away from their parents, Roma children, um, and, and given to live with Czech families. Maybe they were adopted by the Czech families. Um, sometimes it was just, uh, you know, the state was was organizing for them to to be with them so that they would learn Czech and not speak Romani, so that they would grow up with, you know, sort of mainstream ideas and values um, instead of being more um, influenced by their by their cultural and, and ethnic uh, traditions. Um, the state also set up um, institutions. So there were orphanages where many of these children were then taken away from their parents and were raised by the institution, basically. So to come back so to their my... identity was was. Yeah, so their yeah, so their identity as being Roma was um, suppressed, except for the fact, of course, that they were easily recognizable very often because of their physical appearance as being different from the majority society. So it wasn't like, it wasn't that people, um, you know, just accepted them for, for who they were afterwards. No, it was never, you know, they, because there was always a, a racial element in this as well, um, which was one of the rationales for, um, for setting up a school like this, because um, under the previous system, um, the Roma had um, been, because of their marginalized status, even under communism, many of them, you know, never completed a high school education. Their chances for socioeconomic mobility was very poor. Um, and, you know, especially now coming out of communism, where you would hope for, for those kinds of things to change. Um, so that was one of the rationales for this school to be set up to offer the Roma a safe space in which they could be with others like themselves and where they could learn not just um, what they needed in order to graduate high school and then have the opportunity to, you know, to have a good job, to go to university, et cetera. But the school also offered classes in Roma history, the Roma language, um, you know, a, a Roma culture. Um, so it was a way to revalorize um, these aspects of their identity that had been taken away from them. Um, and so that was where, why I was interested in doing research there, because I wanted to see how this was was playing out. So, um, you know, just so to give your audience um, some sense of, you know, how this fits into what I've been talking about. So I was doing the um, the the research, you know, sort of. Um, thinking about this larger framework of 60 years of communism and then this very sudden but peaceful shift in terms of political ideologies, the kinds of impacts that was having on the economic um, structures of society, um, uh, and then think, and then of course thinking about um, the educational structure within which um, the Roma, these children, and their parents and grandparents. Um, you know, had been going through. So these were sort of the larger macro level structures um, that I was, you know, keeping in mind as I was then doing fieldwork. And the fieldwork consisted of, you know, going to class with the students. I was actually teaching them an English class. So I was participating both uh, as sort of sitting in the classroom with them as a student um, with some of their other teachers, and then also interacting with them as a you know, quote unquote teacher, um, hanging out with them in their dorm. It was a boarding school. So um, the students stayed overnight. Um, 
So I would hang out with them in the evenings. They had, you know, a social room where they would, you know, dance and listen to music and, and party a little bit after class. They did extracurricular activities such as sports or swimming, you know, in some places outside of the school in municipal facilities. So I would go with them to their, to, to those kinds of activities, um, you know, hang out with them and, and chat, you know, in their, in their dormitory rooms. Um, so those, so that's, kind of, you know, my, the micro level that I'm talking about. And so hanging out was really important. What were sort of the main findings with regards to the rules, the status, the performance, and how did identity evolve when they tried to take back the Roma identity? And I, maybe briefly in the next three minutes. Sure. Yeah. Um. Well, so basically, um, it was not as smooth as, you know, what, what one might, as one might expect, it was not a smooth thing because basically, you know, you had children who were coming into this uh, context who had different kinds of social capital to draw on. So some of the students were coming from families where despite, you know, the repressions under communism, they had still um, continued to speak Romani at home or they had gone regularly to visit um, grandparents or family in rural areas in Slovakia, where they were very uh, exposed to the language and the culture and traditions. Um, but then there were also students who had grown up with Czech families. Um, and so for them, their parents were, you know, white Czech. Um, and it was very hard for them to identify with, you know, some of the things that they were hearing their classmates talk about in terms of family life. Um, then there were other children who had been raised in these state institutions where they had had, um, you know, sort of drilled into them that, you know, this, you know, you're just a, a citizen of the state. And that's the aspect of your identity that is the most important. And so how to go about re re recovering this sense of identity. For many of the students, it was a very schizophrenic kind of um, situation because they felt um, they felt jealous of some of their classmates who had easier access to to some of these aspects of identity or to for whom it seemed very normal and um, and and you know easily come by. Um, other students who had been raised with Czechs, um, it didn't mean that they necessarily had been divorced from their um, Roma identity. Some of the Czech families um, wanted their children, to have this double identity, so had made an effort to have let them have contact with their biological parents or with the Roma community. So it was, you know, we had all kinds of levels. Um, and so that came out in sometimes acrimonious interchanges between the students, um, you know, where identity was being contested. You know, some Roma felt, well, you know, you're, you're not really one of us and you'll never really be. And, and some of those students, who said, but yes, we can be, but we have to do this maybe to, in order to, to gain acceptance. So, you know, again, thinking about how identity is constructed, these students were very much confronted with how do we then go about um, constructing a new identity, taking into account this, this Roma aspect of our lives or reconstructing it if it was something that they had had, but then felt that it had been lost. Um, and um, but it was it was a contested playing field. OK, well, that's very fascinating. I want to really thank you very much for this really fascinating in-depth 
understanding of identity and it really helped listeners to get a framework to understand what we've been talking about in this podcast series. I really want to thank you, uh, Shukti, for My this. Pleasure. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Saffron Global Health. It complements workshops that are designed to create a safe space to talk about identity and to create a sense of belonging. If you want to learn more or get involved, please visit our website at www.safranglobalhealth.com.